I didn't get to finish uh, last week, so we're going to finish it up this week. Well, I think so. Uh, I want you to turn with your into your Bibles to First Samuel chapter 15. Uh, if you don't happen to have one, you can look at the the screen as long as Caleb's following along. Caleb, you could go ahead and move to the slides there. <clears throat> Perfect. So we're going to look at 15 verse 12, or at least starting at verse 12. If you remember, this was the the story of Saul, King Saul, as he was as he had dealt with his disobedience with God. I've got it on. Doesn't sound right. So, uh, yeah, it's on. Maybe I just need need a little bit closer. Uh, thanks for letting me know. It's always good. Um, so Samuel had had just Saul had just disobeyed God in what God had given him, and um, and now he's experiencing or going through the loss and what that means. But we are just talking about this as it pertains to worship and our understanding and our ideas of worship. So let's look in First Samuel chapter fifteen, verse twelve. Uh, so when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself, and he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, this is your word. It's amazing that I should be given one privilege to be able to preach your word. But what I want to pray is that you would highlight through the Holy Spirit what we need to hear today. Every one of us need to understand and hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. Lord, and there's such a diversity even here. But there's an anointing to be able to break yokes of bondage. There's truth, God, that meant to penetrate our hearts and take root within our lives and lead us in following you. And Jesus, I want to pray that there'd be no error, nothing, Lord, misrepresented or missaid, that every bit of this, Lord, would be in favor, in unity with your heart and mind. God, we need you today. Lord, we need you to change us. God, we need what you want to do in our lives. Lord, we can't in this short temporal life that's like a vapor that appears for a short time. We can't afford to miss a second and a moment in the will of God for us. Lord, we don't have time to lose even one second in light of eternity is so important. So today, Jesus, would you deliver your word somehow through my life? Lord, would you give us ears to hear and, Lord, hearts to receive it? 
And Lord, speak into the deep areas of our life. Bring freedom where there's bondage. And Lord, bring bondage where we were never supposed to have freedom. Lord, keep us from enjoying things and wanting things for ourselves that You never intended. And Lord, make it all about You when it's all said and done. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want you to capture this part of this verse. It says He set up a monument for Himself. And if we remember from last week, Samuel told him you were supposed to go and destroy Amalek and not leave anything left. Nothing was to be left. There was no spoils. There was nothing to come back into the camp. And he, he had destroyed Amalek, but he kept the king of Amalek and he kept back some of the animals. And he thought, what a small little piece compared to the great victory. And so from his point of view, he had won a great victory. He'd had a huge landslide victory, as it were. Um, and yet because of what we would maybe have thought were minor areas became major in this. See, this is the issue is when God gives us something to do and He calls us to obey Him, a minor infraction is a complete disregard for the whole thing. We can't half disobey God and get there in the end. And this is a story that highlights for us how essential it is to go all the way with the Lord. What He wants for us to do. Not to miss a piece of it. Now obviously we need the Holy Spirit to reveal to us the will of God in its completion before we get there. But it's really important that we understand that we don't settle for less than the will of God in our lives. But He set up a monument for Himself. A monument is a statue or a building or other structure erected to commemorate a famous or notable person or event. Now, how many of us, I mean, most of us in our life, when we do something, we accomplish something, maybe we get a trophy, but we certainly don't build a monument around it. But, you know, you have to realize the kind of the context here is, is this is a king, and in order to promote, you know, that authority and what it looks like in that context, that would make more sense under this. But at the same time, even though this is the structure of the culture, so to speak, back in the day, doesn't mean God called for it. Maybe there's times when monuments should be erected, but many times that's not by the person who did it. You know, It's somebody else who recognized it and they built the monument in, in light of what you've done. But this can just show like this, this idea that he had. And Saul's disobedience seemed to him like innocent failure. I told you that last week. So because he won the victory over Amalek, he felt empowered for personal recognition. When we get something, or we manage to do something bigger than we thought we could, it's natural for us to feel the desire for personal recognition over it. But that's where we go south. The moment you crave and demand and require and expect recognition for what you've done, it won't be long before you find a trail of sadness that you have to walk down as a result of it. But this is bigger because it's not just what is it about me, but it's instead of the recognition being to God, this is the recognition going to Saul. And we have to be careful when we step into life and we spend too much time 
trying to get recognition. Well, what, how come people don't notice me? How come people didn't see what I've done? And, you know, and understandably so. I think we should. From the other side of this, I should be recognizing people who have done good in their life. I should honor you for doing what's honorable. But that doesn't mean that we should be in any kind of an atmosphere trading the glory that belongs to God and getting it for ourselves. Personal monuments can be a way of escaping reality. A boost of self-esteem can seduce you, seduce us to soften the conviction of our conscience. Now you have to realize the framework. You have to remember that God was not giving credence to Saul. God was not lifting him up and saying, Saul, you've done everything that I wanted. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That is not what was happening here. Yet Saul was in the idea, maybe the pretense, that it was. Now I can't tell you whether this is a deception or an outright foolishness as far as that's concerned, but the reality check is that he was missing the reality piece here. He wasn't seeing it, and God was needing to give to him the reality. How many of us get into those moments where it's just like this need for self-esteem this boost of self-esteem will get me the next mile. Well, here's the thing. <clears throat> if we're going to deal with correction and godly conviction, the conviction is there, one, to establish that we're not in the right place. We're not where God wants us to be. If we're not careful, what we do is, see, there's a right time for everything. There's a right time for encouragement. There's a right time to feel the boost to our esteem, as it were. There's a right time for that. But the right time is not before we've gotten the correction settled. <laughs> before we get God's message to our hearts where we need to be. And so sometimes all we really need is the maturity to be able to release ourselves to the conviction of God and say, Lord, here I am. Here I am. Speak to my heart. I, I need you to correct me. I'm open to the dealings of God in my life. And it says that God chastens those whom He loves. He chastens us. But what if we try and end that too soon? What if our longing for comfort gets in the way of God finishing the chastening? We need to be careful that we don't fall into that deception. Because what God does, and He finishes in the chastening, yes, it hurts. Yes, it's hard. But it, it fixes us and it changes us. And what you're going to see is, one thing, you're not going to repeat the matter over and over again because you've been, you got let God finish the work. And our society and culture is everything but. It's a cancer culture, meaning you're not going to tell me I'm wrong and you're not going to get into the nitty-gritty of my life, and you're certainly not going to put me down before I get you down. I want to read you this quote by uh, J.C. Ryle. You should be able to get there here. Yep. Let us watch against pride in every shape. Pride of intellect, pride of wealth, pride in our own goodness, pride in our own deserts. 
Nothing is so likely to keep a man out of heaven and to prevent him from seeing Christ as pride. So long as we think we are something, we shall never be saved. We shall never be saved. See, we have to remember that Jesus saves us from. He doesn't just save us. Imagine that. Like, you know what? You're, you're going to get... I'm, when we when we look at our life, we're sinners. And because of that sin, we kind of want to walk into paradise feeling like that's all just been ignored. But that gets dealt with. And so we can't let contradictions get in the way of our faithfulness to walking with Jesus. We just can't let the contradictions get in the way of what it means. I've learned from marriage for a long time that there are things that you cannot have in your marriage and make it work. And you can't pray, Lord, make it work. You have to pray, Lord, this needs to change so that it will work according to your will. And if we're not careful, we're praying for a miracle in the wrong way of things. So Saul went down to Gilgal. So the other part of this, he built a monument and he went down to Gilgal. This is where he was anointed as king. If you recall the story, this was where he was anointed as king. Gilgal was a place of spiritual calling and replenishing. What looked like an eager soul running after God really was a man running from God. Now, I would say this. I think some people are running to meetings for spiritual revival that neglect God in their prayer closets. You can go and you can be as spiritual in, in an environment that looks spiritual, but if you don't have spirituality in the fabric of your heart, none of that ultimately matters. But what is it? Is it, there's this thing? Is when the soul is in a place of discomfort and unrest, it's natural for us to want to go to where there's a spiritual life. But we have to be careful that we're not missing what God is saying in the middle of that. The outcome of going to Gilgal depends on if you are running to God for correction or running from God's conviction. See, interesting, Gilgal can be another place of spiritual life. This is a place, in a sense, it may be a church, it may be a prayer closet, it may be a place that's more like what God does in that moment. And so we can be looking, and your heart search for refreshing from the presence of the Lord. And so you're looking for that place to be refreshed. But the outcome of what happens at Gilgal, whether you get a replenishing, just like it was when you first met Jesus, or you go to this place expecting a replenishing and get everything other than, is dependent upon whether you're running to God for the conviction to settle the issues between you and Him, or you're running from from it or running to it. Essentially, Saul was running from it, so he was looking for something to happen at Gilgal that wasn't going to happen. You can go to the next slide. The same, I want you to capture this, the same place that Saul received his calling ended up being the same place where he ended his calling. 
there's this powerful drive in our life to just keep going toward where God wants us to be and looking forward. And, you know, you think of Samson in the Bible, and Samson had this, it was almost like he had this idea, spiritual stamina was never going to let up no matter how much he disobeyed God, no matter how he continued to uh, fail in stepping toward what God's will was for his life. And so Sam, so, uh, Samson teased his wife Delilah, and he teased her to the place he gave up what God had given to him. And sometimes we flirt with sin, with evil, with compromise in our life to the place that we do it long enough, we give up what God had for us. Let's look at verse uh, 13 and 14. So 1 Samuel 15, verses 13 and 14. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul had this aura about him as if he really accepted the man of God and he accepted the will of God, but yet he wasn't accepting the conviction of God. And note that the boldness to speak plainly, so when Samuel spoke to him, the boldness came from previous verses that said that he was weeping for him. He was weeping for him. Whatever evidence there was that betrayed Saul's claim of faithfulness was central to the mercy that he was going to receive. See, the evidence that betrayed his claim of faithfulness, it betrayed it. I, this, this, the, the animals, and the, they're making the noises that they normally do, that shows I didn't follow through with what God had for me. But the difference was this, that Saul was making claims of faithfulness on knowledge of not being faithful. There's a deception there, but there's also this idea that I want to I want to look measured up when I'm not measured up. And because of that, it was central to the mercy he was received. And there's an idea that seems to prevail when we talk about the love of God and the, the unconditional love of God as if everything goes because of. And so when we look at the mercy of God, we have to have a biblical understanding of it because God's mercy is not so far outreaching that even if you want to abuse it, you get the favor of it also. Now that doesn't mean God hasn't graciously reached out even when we've been the abusers of, but at the same point, it doesn't mean that it's without measure. Or there's like, I remember what it was, uh, I read this a long time ago, but it said if patience were unending, it wouldn't be a virtue. Think about that. There has to be a point in which patient could be end, or it wouldn't be its own virtue. And the patience of God and the mercy of God is not one where he's like, I'm worn out because I'm tired of what you've done. The mercy of God is, is that you are in a state of mind and heart that no matter what I do for you, 
And remember what it was like for us prior to Jesus in our lives. There were so many times that Jesus delivered me from death. There were so many ways that God was there blessing and holding me up and keeping me from some next harm. There were so many things that God, had, had it been not been for what He had done, I would have been further in darkness than what it was. But I didn't recognize that until I came to the Lord. And once I saw that, it was like there's this immeasurable mercy poured out over my life. And it's incredible to think about how God was always there behind the scenes. And so there's this mercy that we can be so blinded to that's already being poured out. And if we harden our hearts long enough against it, at some point, God's like, I can't give you mercy and it be for your good. How many of us have had people like that in our life? We've tried to help somebody. I'm going to share a story with you here shortly, but tried to help somebody and find out that more I tried to help, the worse things got. The act of mercy was not your key. <laughs> And it wasn't here either. And sometimes we have to realize that. That mercy is not the answer at the start. It was somewhere down the line. But it will be later. But it's not yet. And so we're like trying to heal before sometimes we've got to cut it open. And that's a good word. Yeah, it's not up there. You're not getting it any other way. Some people say, hey, James, do you remember what you said about... I was like, I don't. <laughs> I remember maybe it was on the notes. Sometimes I'll go back through them because it ministers to me. And Saul said... So let's look in verse 15. And then Saul said, they have brought them... So he's, he's like... He's, he's, Samuel confronts him and says, what is the bleeding of the ears? The bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen. And then Saul said, now he's getting caught. They have brought them, I want you to capture that, from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. What did he just do? He just shifted the blame. It's not my fault. And maybe there's some merit to that, and I want you to pay attention to that part. I want you to pay attention. that This caught me when I was reading it. There may be some merit that it's their fault. They may have been of the mindset and attitude. You can't do that. You can't give us a victory and not give us the spoils of victory. How many battles have we won and, you're not, and we've been able to take from the camp? And this time you're telling us we can't have anything? That could have been. It doesn't tell us that. But I want you to pay attention to how God dealt with him even if that were true. And that's something we need to think about very carefully for ourselves. Saul is making an attempt to escape the conviction that he's needing to own up to. And this is done by turning against the people. Notice he is not arguing the facts. He's arguing the blame of moral responsibility. They brought them. Now, it says, let no man say, in James, let no man say when he's tempted, he's tempted of God. For God is not tempted of evil, neither does he tempt any man. Every man is tempted of his own lust, and when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, 
And sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. But this is where the rationale of the human mind gets in the way. Well, God's not tempting me, but so-and-so is. And if you notice, Jesus holds us accountable. He says, he that's offended against one of these little ones, that it had been greater, better for him that a millstone, that he hadn't been born, or that a millstone tied about his neck and thrown into the water. So what you must know is God is going to keep the right people accountable for what they've done. But do not lend yourself permission off of their uh, offenses to do things God never gave you permission for. Responsibility seems ambiguous, meaning that we don't, maybe it's kind of a gray area, whether I own up to it or somebody else, seems ambiguous when you're wrestling with accusation. Sometimes rightful accusation, but it seems ambiguous. Like I can't quite place it. And you know, haven't we all been there when you think about it is, is that I feel like when somebody has provoked me, think of the story of Moses. The people began to speak to him and they were pushing him to do, and then he became angry and he spoke unadvisedly, the Bible says. That one act with Moses kept him from the promised land. And I think this, that you are on, God keeps you accountable to the degree that you are spiritually mature. Meaning that some of us, it's a shorter strand than others of us because we've come closer to God. We've been on the trail of living near Jesus for a longer period of time, so we don't have the same kind of excuse clause as others would. You don't have this, you have more light, you have more experience as far as that was concerned. But when it comes down to it, what we all want at some point is, instead of owning up, we want a justification for. Like, I didn't mean to, or whatever the case is. And, and so here you see this. Saul is looking, now having to own up, but God's caught me. God's got me in. He's got me in the scope, and He's got me completely uh, surrounded. There's nothing I can do. This isn't a battle I'm going to win. He didn't give me... 200,000 foot soldiers to fight against the armies of heaven. It's now the armies of heaven against me, and I'm caught. What do I do with that? That's a pretty powerful thought. And he was caught with that. And instead of owning up to it, you're right. I, I was wrong. He kept trying to make excuses. He was first, oh, I performed. Well, we kept back, and now it's the people Boom, boom, boom. And it's just like there's, you can see the state of his heart. You see the revelation of his heart. That's why God's not getting a breakthrough in mercy over his life. It's because he's holding on to the problem. He's holding on to the problem. And when he lets go, he'd receive mercy, but he's held on to it. Your willingness to receive correction is proportional to your outlook on personal blameworthiness when other people provoke you. I remember when I was at work, uh, I was sharing a story about this with somebody not too long ago. When I worked in Walla Walla, 
and I worked in the salvage yard. And believe me, the conditions of the place were just grueling enough all on their own. I didn't need to add anything else to it. But I remember we were we were cutting. We'd have these torches, and they were about three feet long. They were long torches. We just I I don't know how to weld that well, but I can cut like a maniac. And you know, I haven't cut metal for a long time. But I'm more than sure that I had done so much of it that I never have to worry the rest of my life whether I'll keep that skill or not. But along this, we were cutting, um, and he was cutting kind of next to me, and he's in his 80s. And so some things are beginning to fail, it seemed like. At least to me it did. (laughs) And uh, I think his eyesight was going dim because um, his torch... He started cutting with it, and I had learned a long time ago, you, you clean that tip, and you keep the tip out of the molten slag because it'll pop back into it, and the metal will kind of cool down into your tip, and it'll just make it harder to cut with. And so I watched him over and over again kind of get it too close and you know mess up his tip, and that was his business if that's how he wanted to do it. But one day, saw him doing it, and he blamed me for it. I was like, what's your deal? Like, But you do not correct an 80-year-old man. I'm just telling you, it's especially, especially when he works out in a junkyard. Like, this man works hard. He, oh, he has the right to tell you what's right and what's wrong, whether it's true or not. But I did something. And, you know, in my youth, it was a very difficult thing. And even though I wasn't to be blamed, you know what I did? I took the blame. I said, I'm sorry, I'll do better next time. Now, I know that that seems, and that's not always necessary, but what I learned is that God forges the will in the fire. And the thing that matters is not whether you're right or wrong. What matters is, am I going to reflect back on Jesus the right way when this is said and done? I want to give you a quote by John Burroughs. He says, you can be discouraged many times, but you are not a failure until you begin to blame somebody else and stop trying. Pretty powerful. Started right there at the beginning in Genesis. We we introduce sin in the world simply by this very feature. You have an address. You have to address, sorry, you have to address and rightly determine what your obligations, and you know what, I I added this later on during my sermon because I realized this, and not just obligations and privileges are in light of the fall of others. What is my privilege when people are doing things that are just, and it's all around me, like I can't avoid it. I have to deal with it. I have to be in the middle of this. You can curse. You can have issues with it. You can constantly talk down on people or whatever the case is. But when you think about it, I want you to take into consider what Jesus said. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good for those who hate you, and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Whoa, Lord. (laughs) Wow. That's a tough one. Until you begin to understand how peaceful it is to walk in the center of God's will. See, this is the privilege. And what I realized is my privilege is I don't have to be a servant, a slave, or I don't have to give idolatry to the to whether I am rightly or wrongly accused. I'm free. Jesus set me free. I don't have to be a slave to that. 
So how do I know I'm not a slave to it? Because I remember saying, making this statement. I said, if I can accept, I can accept wrong for something I didn't do wrong, then certainly I'll be really good at accepting it when I have. And I think that that's kind of the heart of what Jesus is saying when he says, Tell, love your enemies, is you got to get a past you piece of this whole thing. This is about me and what I want. And how I'm. When your enemies, they don't just use you. They despitefully use you. And Jesus says, pray for them. Well, how are you going to pray? for Lord, I pray a curse down upon my enemy. No. I pray that they'll be broken. I pray that they'll be mashed into pieces. I'll pray that they'll see their sin. And that's how a lot of people are praying. Or, Lord, I pray that the blessing that you give to them will open their eyes with tenderness toward their faults. The goodness of God leading them to repentance. I don't want to see a curse on my enemies if there's a better way to help them along. Man, that was good. Praise you, Jesus. <laughs> I say things at times I like, I didn't realize I was going to say that. I want to share a story with you. This is a, a woman that, this is a while back, but I had shared, I, I tried to help her. And I just want to share a little bit of the story. I tried to help her with uh, something in her life, and she had shared with me this financial burden that she had. And I talked to my wife. That was a good thing. I don't know that we landed on an agreement at least afterwards, but we did. I thought we did before. But none of that matters too much. We just had this, we had had a conversation. It was going to be quite a bit of money. I was going to pay the bill. I wasn't giving her money. I was just paying the bill. We paid the bill. And she promised me over and over again, I'm going to give you the money back. I just need help. You know, da-da-da-da-da-da. And, you know, I fall prey to my compassion. And here's the question in my mind. Does the outcome of the situation determine whether it was right for you to do or not? No. No. So sometimes we're like, okay, I felt like I got bitter treatment out of this. So what? Right? If I did what God wanted me to. And if you feel unhappy about it, maybe you should have consulted the Lord a little bit longer. Right? We should just spend some time with Jesus before. Like if I, I'm like, okay, the outcome makes me feel like I should have never done it. Then maybe you should realize from that your fault was make sure that you're solid on the will of God first. So I gave and, and I didn't get a call and I sent texts and it was just like all of a sudden it went blank. And then I found somebody had said, uh, I got some furniture and stuff. Can you? Would you be willing to give this to so-and-so? I mean, give it away. And I was like, sure. I, I think I know somebody who could. And I was like, okay, I'm not getting anything back, but I'm still exercising this generosity. <laughs> Little did I know, here it is, hanging out in my, at my house. And I'm like, uh, and so I'm making phone call. And the first thing was, I said, Ken, um, before I get this, are you interested in it? She replied back. First time, she replied. Went, okay, fine. So... I decided to take it on until she could get it. And then she never, after that, never did contact me, call me, let me know, and I never got paid back. It's still to this very day. There's where the privilege comes in. The privilege is, it's not my weight to carry. It's not mine. If I followed what Jesus wanted me to do, I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to call her on the carpet. I don't have to go trace her down and say, you have a debt you owe or any of that stuff. And I don't have to sleep on it or struggle with it. 
I can add it to a sermon later on just to talk about how freedom is really free. It's really powerful. I remember even a part of this. There was a time where the money would have came in to just like kind of bring back, oh, I need to pay a few things. And I came under kind of a heat of stress in the moment. All of those are sometimes sacrifices you make to follow Jesus and quit worrying about the rest. Let's go to uh, chapter 15, verses 15, and then verse 22. And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep, here he is again, and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. I missed the... Let me go 15. I did... Okay. So, no, I'm just, I'm just rephrasing. So Samuel said, has the Lord a great delight? So he rephrased, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to, be, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Catch this. Sacrifices was essential to what they were doing. That was a part of what was going on back then. To us, we're like, why are they even doing sacrifice? Because that's not a part of our life, culture, or experience. But it was theirs. Sacrifice was a very important part of their worship and their devotion to God. But what Saul was doing with that was he was making it all about the sacrifice. This is the last ditch attempt to dump off conviction that he needed to own up to. Elevating one act of obedience is central to all. Now, yes, it's important. And it's a central part, but it's not central to everything else. And that's what Samuel was now breaking it back down to him is you're not getting out of that, that to obey is better than sacrifice. If for some reason God has something for you to do and it excludes sacrifice or keeps you from doing it, in that instance, it's exactly what you should be doing and that's more important. And then he tells them that it's like witchcraft. The rebellion is like witchcraft. And what makes this rebellion is, is simply the fact that every avenue that God uses to correct Saul, he keeps trying to pull away from. That's what makes it rebellion. Just his heart submission is as simple as this could be a completely different story and a whole different outcome had he been submissive to the authority of what God was saying to him. The friend who did, and oh, I need to share this story with you. So I remember we had, when I was in Bible school, we had a guy that was a friend of mine there, and he, would, he was always working out. What I didn't know was when he worked out, that he only worked out his upper body. He didn't work out the lower body. And you know, jeans and pants and stuff kind of covered that because, I mean, he looked strong upward, but the kind of the bagginess of things made everything look like it was just as big down there too. Until one day, I saw him, I saw him running in his shorts. I was like, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. This is so lopsided. This is not the impression. This gave me a whole different impression of what this is all about. And I want you to realize when you let one truth and you elevate one truth over another, you make your life look more than what it is. 
And God doesn't want you to get in that category of trying to be bigger because people expect you to be. Just show them what's really going on. Let the Lord have His way into your heart. No need for pretenses with God. No need for them. God wants us to worship, but not make it all about worship. To love others, but not all about loving others. To pray, but not all about prayer. It's all its own workout. If you want to think about prayer as its workout, loving others as a workout, learning to worship God as a workout, all of it is a part of the whole and the same one service to Jesus. Lopsided service to Jesus, working out the upper body for Jesus, but leaving the lower body down is not a wholehearted service to God, and it never will be. So when we start realizing it's a whole thing, it's a whole thing. So wherever I'm lacking, I need to build that part of my body. So sometimes we need to leave off the part that we're used to. Sometimes you don't need to be praying. You need to be out there serving. And other times we need to be there in prayer. But you need to figure out what's the weak part of your life and, and let God have His place in that area. And lastly, in verse 15, 24 through 25. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, finally. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, he should have left it at that. He should have stopped right there. But he went this. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. He's prematurely trying to jump back into intimacy with Jesus when he needs to finish the correction process. And the reason why we don't enjoy the spiritual environment more is because oftentimes that's what gets in the way of it. Worship would be so much different if that were the case. Saul had worked so hard to build a monument of self-approval that he failed to factor in what the love of God would look like. See, he was, run, he was in such fear to let the Lord have a place in his heart, and he just surrendered. God's love was in the conviction. God's love was in the accusation. God's love was there present in the moment, and he needed to yield to that. But he hadn't factored that in. He tried to bring his monument of brokenness into his world. Brokenness can look a lot like, wow, look at his accomplishments. Look at what she has done. Look at her amazing, his amazing legacy that he's left. And a lot of brokenness can be in there. I remember a man saying to me a while back, he said, I use humor, I used humor in my life to escape my anger. And I think that's the central piece because Jesus meant it to mold it to purity, to shape, to the human desire for what is the good, and we keep reshaping it, and that's not how God intended it. I remember I heard this quote a while back. It says, hurt people hurt people. And that cap I ca captured that. I, I re I've known that for a long time in my life. Anger was a part of something that I carried because of my past, my background, my home life and all that. And I just kind of kept carrying it everywhere I went. Hurt people hurt people. So what does healthy people, holy people, healed people do? Well, we heal people. 
So we reduce worship into something less than sacred by not giving ourselves completely to God. Something less than sacred. And, and why am I sharing this? Because I feel like as I read this and I was walking through the story of Saul, Saul's story at first looks like it's all about Saul. But really it's all about the worship that belongs to God. And in the end when we realize that's the heart of this whole thing, the purity of worship that goes to the Lord. And I'd heard, I'd heard this not too long ago, but this was something that was said. Uh, go to a church that celebrates you. I love what the preacher said. He said, no, go to the church that celebrates God. <laughs> you'll be whole, you'll be pure when it comes to be all about Him. And when we stop trying to make every doctrinal statement, everything that the Bible says fit our own happiness and our own self-approval, we'll stop going to church like it's McDonald's. Here, I want to order some Holy Ghost and fries. And we'll start actually yielding to the Lord and saying, you can put anything you want in front of me, Lord. This is your table. And you can put in broccoli that I don't like to eat, but I'm going to do it because I love Jesus. And it is not going to be all about pleasing yourself and making you happy. But in the end, you'll see the glory of God fall down. And you want people changed. That's what they need to see. They don't need to see a self-serving Christianity. They don't need to see it all about you and me. They need to see it's about someone bigger than us. And in the long run, you're not so easily duped and bound by the fear and the accusations and the worries that everybody... I don't care if you accept me. Now, I say that, and we still go through the battle. But the reality is, can we get past it? Will you pray, Jesus, I'm sitting at the table. This is not McDonald's. Are you serving me the non-acceptance meal today? I'm not going to be accepted. And you're going to teach me character. You're going to teach me to forge into the fire. You're going to teach me to hold on to you because it's tough. And that's what I'm being fed. And it's nourishing my soul. That's beautiful. That's Christianity. Anything else is some other kind of sloppy version of something said called Christianity, but it's not. And that's what we need. Amen? So I want to do something at the end of this service. I'm not inviting you to the altar. I'm inviting you to come up and pray. Because this isn't about whether you got something wrong in your life. This is about something that you want. you just wanted to press in toward God with. This is a beautiful time. This is what I would recommend. Come, whether you come to the altar or not, but I would, I'm going to just say, just come to the altar. Forget that there's people up here singing pretty close to you because that's not the issue here. And I know how I would feel in the moment. I imagine that some of us do. Lord, I'm hungry for you. Jesus, maybe I'm coming with a lot of other difficulties, but I'm hungry for you, Lord, and I want you to touch me. I've already been ministered to in this service, but I want you to do something more because I can't help but feel like that's the God that you are. Will you minister to my heart, Lord, and help me walk out of this place newer, not new because I know you guys are new, but newer than I was when I walked in. I want more, Jesus. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and lead. I want to pray. As again, I don't have a formal closing because I know as we spend time with the Lord, that could look like till midnight. 
So we let the Lord have as much time with you as you want and he wants. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much. It is a beautiful thing that the Holy Spirit wants to do in our life. Lord, in the simplicity of we just got to yield. Lord, we have a lot of things, and the devil has done everything he can in his book to tell us that there's a limit to where God's going to go with you. Lord, we can't run to you in our pride. Lord, our pride is always going to be a wall to the cross. But, oh, Jesus, I thank you. Humility is an open invitation, and there's no conditions that stop that from happening. So today, Jesus, right in this place, Lord, would you minister to every one of us even more. Lord, I love to be in your presence and I love what you fa- how you finish the work, God. But we're not done here. We're not done because, Lord, there's something more that you're establishing in each of our lives. God, help us right now to just press in in Jesus' name. Press in and find what you have for us, Lord. Thankful that there's always something new, something better at the table of the Lord. Just find the hungry hearts, Jesus. We give you all the praise. Amen.